Gateway, this is Reggie. Reggie, this is Gateway. Hello, Gateway. Reggie was super excited about speaking in front of everybody this morning. He's been begging me for weeks to get up front because he, he loves so much. We're in the middle of a series of messages we're calling, What's Your Story? And so I wanted to begin these messages by just having somebody share their story. So, Reggie, you grew up in India. Yes. What part of India did you grow up in, Reggie? So I grew up in uh, one of the southernmost uh, tips of India, a place called Pondicherry, for uh, those who have uh, read the book Life of Pi. So that's a place, Pondicherry, and the school is Petit Seminar. That's the first shot of that movie. That's the same school that I went to. Oh, really? Okay, so native language for you. What was the language in your home? Uh, Tamil, Malayalam, and English. Okay. I don't honestly know. Does everyone in India also speak Hindi or? No. Pondicherry is predominantly Tamil-speaking population. So the public schools are Tamil-speaking? Tamil, Hindi, and English. Okay. All right. So, Reggie, you have a few kids in the Loudoun County public schools, or at least in the India you grew up in. How is the education different there than it is here? There's uh, free access to public education in the U.S., uh, which is a process in the making in India. So there's a lot of pressure on parents to have uh, the kids educated in private schools. And so there's a lot of emphasis on math, science, and engineering. So a lot of kids get uh, educated in private schools? Yes. Are those sectarian, like Catholic schools? Or are they government schools or private enterprises? or what Most are they? of them are uh, private schools are from Catholic and some Hindu institutions. Okay. Uh, pr- public school is not compulsory. They are in the process right now. So parents who could afford to put their kids in, in private school, you know, there's a lot of uh, pressure on kids to do well in math and science. So little Reggie growing up in India, I'm not going to pronounce the province. What did Reggie do for fun when you were little? Play cricket. <laughs> okay, so I know cricket was important to you. When did you start playing cricket? I started playing cricket from the age of eight. Huh. How do you start playing cricket in India? I mean, is, are there cricket fields everywhere? Or? Any open uh, piece of land, you could just go and play. Cricket is fairly similar to baseball, except in baseball you have a strike zone. In cricket you have something physically called wickets, three sticks in the back. So that's a strike zone, which is the equivalent in baseball. I'm still going to come watch sometime with you and let you explain because I, I don't get it. So you played for years yes. and had considerable success with cricket. What was your, I don't know, what was your favorite memory from your years of playing cricket? So I grew up in a single-parent household. It was my mom and my sister. So cricket ground was a place where I expressed myself, both the good and the bad. So from a very young age... Going Both the play, good and the bad, you said? Definitely, okay. yes. <laughs> so growing up playing cricket, I with, with friends and neighboring kids, it was fun, but at the same time a lot of trouble for my mom picking up fights with uh, kids because I hated losing. So my mom realized that I was fairly up to no good. A couple of years later, I was selected to play for my state, and for the first time, she heard it on the news that I got selected to play. And that's when she believed, okay, this guy could do something in life. <laughs> <laughs> she heard it on the news because you didn't tell her. No, I didn't tell her. <laughs> okay. Why would you not? Just curious. She wouldn't believe me. So she <laughs> said, all right. All right. And the second time was when I played in front of Suda at Haverford University in Pennsylvania. Huh. Okay. So... A few weeks ago, Reggie, I talked about the importance of, in our story, of being spiritually curious, how important spiritual curiosity is for us figuring out our own story and unwrapping our own story and hearing the story of others and connecting with other people. In fact, we talked about Jesus in the New Testament. He asked over 300 questions. We don't usually think of Jesus like that. And some of those questions were rhetorical. Some of them were confrontational, but many of the questions were just spiritually curious questions. What's your story? What's in your heart? What do you believe? After the message, you came up to me. You'll never do that again, I guess. 
and told me you appreciated it, and you told me about a spiritually curious encounter that you'd been able to have with someone just that week, I think, over the phone. Is that right? So do you mind sharing this? So to most of you who know, I have a small IT consulting company. It's, right now it's more in the staffing mode. Uh, we do a lot of staffing. So a client of uh, ours was asking for a project manager for one of the projects, and we did recruit a good candidate. We had a few of them lined up. And uh, we presented this uh, candidate for this opportunity, and he was scheduled for an interview. Uh, the interview was slated two days later after we presented, and uh, the guy did not take the interview. He kept postponing it a few times. Uh, so one of my staff told me that, uh, you know, he's just giving us a runaround. So I picked the phone and called him, and then he didn't pick my call, and then we've been, we started texting back and forth. So I said, I understand you're you know, fairly serious in your work, and, but if you're interested, uh, you know, we could go with the process of this interview and you could possibly get this job. And then he said, why don't we call at 5, 5.30? So I just waited for his call and we started talking. I could sense that uh, he was not very happy or he was kind of sad. So I started engaging him in a conversation and he said that his mom passed away a couple of weeks back and that he was in the process of losing his house in Boston. And so I understood it as fairly critical. So I said, what do we do in a situation like this? You know, I have a job for you. You don't have a job. And I realized that you are going through a pretty tough uh, phase in your life. So how do we go about this? He said, Reggie, I could possibly take this interview three weeks later. That's the week of October 12th from tomorrow. And this was two weeks back. And uh, I wasn't sure more often than not, client would say, no, you know what, Reggie, let's go for the next guy. So I told my client that he's not ready to take the interview right now because he's going through some personal situation. And they were, I didn't divulge anything to my client, and they were more than willing to accommodate and said, okay, we'll wait for a couple of more weeks. It never happens that way. So I started talking to him again. I said, so I understand you're going through quite a bit. No words that I speak are going to be comforting enough, the loss of your mom and on the verge of losing your house, but I could possibly pray for you. This is a job phone conversation. It's a job phone conversation. So he shared all of this stuff with you, yes. and, and now you say, well, I could possibly pray, pray for, for you. you. So okay. he said, well, you can try. <laughs> <laughs> and so I give it your best shot, right? <laughs> okay. So I told him that I believe in the living God and... Uh, you know, win or lose, at least uh, you'd be saved. There's a strong possibility that you would come strong in all of this. And uh, again, he said, I just hope so. And two days, that is Thursday, I did call him. Of course, my intention was to have him take the interview, uh, which was on Monday. So I asked him how things are, and he sounded a lot cheerful. So I said, do you think it's time that we give... uh, a thank you note to God. He said, absolutely, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you, Reggie. All right, so Reggie's going to kick us off this morning. He's, we're going to start by reading Mark chapter 2. Uh, before we read Mark chapter 2, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to look at Mark chapter 2, or if you have it on your phone, um, dial up. So before we look at Mark chapter 2, a couple of things. Occasionally, those of you who are part of Gateway will know, I like to squeeze in a couple of sermons And today's going to be one of those days. If you've been a part of church or you've gone to church periodically over the years, you've probably heard someone talk about the incident that Reggie's going to read for us this morning. It's an incident from Jesus' life, and it's a pretty incredible incident. But what it does is it tells us a couple of profound and really incredible things about Jesus. And we can't ignore those, even though we're going to, at the end of today, we're going to dial into what this says about our story. But first of all, we've got to look at a couple of incredible things about Jesus, and I think you'll kind of pick up on it, even as we're just reading through it. So it'll be Mark chapter 2. We're going to talk about a couple of really incredible truths that this points out to us about Jesus. And then we're going to end up by wrapping back around to our story. And I want you to think about it like this. If you're looking for a theme this morning, if you're one of those kind of people... Think about this. We are the color purple. Now, not like the movie, but we are the color purple. So remember that, and we'll get to it at the end. So Mark chapter 2, and Reggie, you got it on your phone? 
And Reg is going to read for us verses 1 through 12. And again, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he entered again into Capernaum, after some days, it was noise that he was in the house. And many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room for them, not even about the door. And he spake the word unto them. And they come, bringing unto him a man sick of palsy, born out of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they laid, they laid down the bed whereon the sick of the palsy lay. And Jesus, seeing their faith, saith unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins are forgiven. But they were again, but they were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why, done, why does this man thus speak? He blasphemeth. Who can forgive sins but one, even God? And straightway Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they so reason within themselves, saith unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thy house. And he arose, and straightway took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed, and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Thanks, Reggie. You may be seated. A couple of incredible things about Jesus. First of all, the first incredible truth about Jesus, that if you've heard this passage before, then you've probably heard someone talk about it this way. The first thing relates to who Jesus is. So I'm going to quote from a later writer, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews. At the very beginning of it, he says this, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, that's Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. He goes on, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. First of all, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. We like to say it like this at Gateway. God squeezed himself into human skin in the person of Jesus. Now, I know that the word Trinity is not used in the New Testament anywhere in the Bible, but it's really difficult to read the New Testament comprehensively and honestly, especially a passage like this, and not come away with the overwhelming impression that something absolutely remarkable and incredible is happening in Jesus. One commentary I read about this passage called it transcendent dignity or or transcendent divinity. Something amazing happened in the person of Jesus. And there are a couple of clear indications of that in this passage. The first indication, again, this is not the main thing we're going to talk about today, but we can't skip it. The first thing is Jesus forgives sins. And you need to understand from first century Jewish perspective, this is something no self-respecting rabbi would ever do, would ever even say it would have been exactly what these guys said that would have threatened to be accused of blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. Now, there are a couple of instances in the Old Testament where a prophet forgives sins, like Nathan the prophet goes to David, but he doesn't forgive sins from himself in his own person. He doesn't say, your sins are forgiven. Nathan goes to David and says, God forgives your sins, which was an incredible and epic thing for one human being to say to another. But Jesus goes beyond just the prophetic office, and he looks at this paralytic guy, and he says, and by the way, the older translations use the word palsy. That's just a word that means someone who's paralyzed. They don't really know the source, or it it was a generic description. In modern-day English, we only use that word associated with mental paralysis, like cerebral palsy. But in the ancient world, it was a, a general term that just meant paralysis. So in the newer translations, it'll say paralytic. So this paralytic guy comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to him in front of this group, your sins are forgiven. Unthinkable. 
The second thing that he does is Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. If you were here a few weeks ago, you'll remember that I said this term Son of Man was a more epic and more transcendent, again to use that same commentary word, and a more divine word even than the term Son of God. The only time this term appears in the Old Testament is in Daniel. And Daniel refers to this transcendent being who was like God or a representative of God or maybe God himself. Daniel calls him the ancient of days, son of God. And after Daniel, this in extra biblical literature, this term will appear periodically and it always represents something epic and transcendent. There are folks who suggest that by the time of Jesus' day, it might also have been used to just be like a generic, oh, we're, you know, we're sons of men. But it was a dangerous thing for Jesus to have said in this context. Now, I grew up in church, and I grew up thinking that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were the bad guys in this story. So, you know, I always think of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as like the pointy hat guys with pointy fingers, and they're, they're super legalistic, and they're over-religious and over-spiritual about everything. But that's not necessarily the case. There, in fact, were some Pharisees who were sympathetic to Jesus, and you don't even need to necessarily read them that way in this story. Yeah, I think it's very likely that the teachers of the law in this story are thinking of Jesus and interacting with him something like this. <laughs> Look, Rabbi, you know, don't say something like your sins are forgiven. You, you can't do that. Do you understand? It's as if, look, you've taken on, you've said of yourself, I'm God. You don't do that. And when you use the term son of man, you know, maybe you don't mean it like son of man, but you can't use that in this context. You've got to stop it because you're going to get yourself in real trouble. Stop. But he doesn't stop. In fact, over the course of his ministry, Jesus gets more intense and even clearer. Very early in his ministry, at this point in his ministry, Jesus is back and forth in and out of these little villages in Galilee, primarily the village of Capernaum. Then he'll go out into the wilderness. He'll do something spectacular. Crowds will hear about it. He'll come back to Capernaum. He gets back into the village. Remember, these are crowded little ancient Near Eastern streets and homes. And Jesus makes his way into a home. The street outside is crowded. There's no access. The home is packed. And Jesus is having probably some kind of teaching event. And this group comes and digs through the roof because they can't make their way to Jesus and lowers this guy down. And Jesus has the audacity to say, your sins are forgiven, and addresses himself as the Son of Man. The first incredible thing about this passage is it begins to give us what Jesus at this point in his ministry is only hinting at. That something incredible is happening. This is what we've waited for for centuries. This is God squeezed into human skin. The second thing incredible about this passage, it gives us a peek at what he's going to show throughout the rest of the Gospels. It gives us a peek at what Jesus, what he does, his activity. And in this... I like the term, I heard some, someone wrote a book years ago called, describing the ministry of Jesus, they called it the presence of the future. So bear with me a minute, the quickest way I know how to explain this is to get Star Trekky on you, so I apologize, but it's as if, if we examine the biblical worldview, it's as if in the biblical worldview, what happened is God, by intention and design, created the world in five dimensions. You know, it was out and up and width over time, and all of that was fused in and around by spirit. So you had this, and you had this, and you had this, and you had time, and you had spirit. And at some point, there was a rebellion. And the spirit part of reality got defused and distracted from the other four dimensions. And so now you and I live in a world that is bent and corrupted, having been separated from the world of the spirit. We no longer have direct access. It's not an immediate part of our world. We live in these three dimensions and we travel across time in what 
cosmologists call the space-time continuum, but I believe that we were originally intended to live inside of spirit in the same way, in a way that's almost unimaginable to you and I. The Bible uses weird terms like, you know, there's going to come a day when you and I are going to be glorified. Well, none of us knows exactly what that means, but it sounds delicious. So the other thing you need to know about the biblical worldview is that the biblical worldview is really clear that reality as we know it, including human history, does not run in a circle. You know the old phrase, history repeats itself. Well, certainly, we repeat our mistakes. We do the same idiotic things over and over again as individuals and as families and as countries. But the biblical worldview is really clear. We were shot out of a cannon from this first cataclysmic event, and history is moving like an arrow in one direction. And that arrow is going to hit a bullseye. And at that bullseye, reality as we know it will cease to exist as we know it. And it gives us the very clear impression that at that point, there'll be a fusing again of the spirit with the other four dimensions. Have I gotten too weird? And in that moment... The Bible can't find, I mean, and I'm talking about all over the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, they cannot find enough words and images that are electric and awesome and big enough to describe what's going to happen in that period, in that sometimes it's called the future age or the age to come. Sometimes that event and sometimes even that period are called the day of the Lord. Sometimes Jesus often would refer to it as the kingdom of God. And one of the things that this story does is it shows us what mind-blowing. Have you seen that commercial where somebody's head blows off and everything is blue? This is like that. What this story does is it shows us that future age, that you've got to be kidding me, fusion of spirit with the other four dimensions, unimaginable, can't even think about it. The authors of Star Trek can't even draw it up. That age, that period has plummeted itself into our age. And we have the presence of the future. A time when you and I will be glorified. A time when there won't be things like weird relational distance. Because we'll know and we'll be known. A time when there there won't be oddness. And there won't be sickness. And there won't be death. Again, the Bible talks about us being glorified. And that day, that power has parachuted itself into our age in the person of Jesus. That's why it was so incredible. You've got to be kidding me when Jesus announced to people, hey, the kingdom of God is among you. What? In me, in, in my ministry, the kingdom of God has come. The presence of the future And this passage, along with all of Jesus' healing stories and the wild and weird things he does, but especially this passage because of the way he unites it with forgiveness of sins and, and I'm the Son of Man. We learn how incredible Jesus is. We learn that Jesus embodied the full power of God, that he was the presence of the future. But wait, that's really not what we came here this morning to talk about because right now we're in the middle of a series of messages in which we're talking about our stories. So here's what we've said about our story so far. We've said, number one, if we're connected to God, if we have a relationship with God, then God is the driving force in our story. God is the driving force in our story, not our circumstances. Oh, I can't believe that. Why did that happen to me? Why? Not our circumstances. Not our choices. Shoot. That was such an idiotic thing. I should have. Not our choices. God is the driving force in our story. Not our talent. Not our parents. Not our history. God is the driving force in our story if we have a connection with him. And when we really get our minds and hearts centered on this truth, we said it fosters a genuine and attractive humility in us. The second thing is it creates freedom in us so the pressure's off because God is the driving force. Secondly, We said about our story, if we're going to connect with God and if we're going to grow in that connection, then it will require us to change direction. We said this is what the Bible calls repent. This will happen in a very significant way at the beginning of our journey with God. 
and it will happen in lesser ways throughout our journey with God. We'll have to give up on trying to find our meaning, our purpose, and our pleasure apart from God. We'll have to turn our lives toward him and pursue him. That's the kind of story we're writing. We're writing the story where we turn away from our own self-salvation projects and we turn toward him. Third, we learn that the establishment and maintenance of key relationships depends on spiritual curiosity. We have to be brave enough and caring enough to wonder who people are and to want to know what they're about. And we have to treat ourselves with the same curiosity. We're addicted to our to-do list, but we've got to get better at storying with ourselves and with others. Listening, asking good questions, talking less. Fourth thing we learned is that none of us gets to be the person that doesn't have mess in their story. We talked about this last week. Sometimes we act as if these things are a surprise to us. Diane, you are such a mess. Why are you saying, why, God, why did I marry a woman who's such a mess and her family is such a mess? Of course, they're not nearly as messy as my family or as I am because none of us gets to be the person that doesn't have mess in our story. Some of you have heard me say this before, but I will often tell, especially a man when I sit down with some of you, and some of you have heard me say this, and when you venture to say something to me to the effect of, I can't believe how crazy she is. I have never known a woman as crazy. I've never known anyone as crazy. She's, she's, she's nuts. Parentheses. All of our problems are because she's so crazy. And I'll usually say something like, well, you've never been married to anybody else. Because if you had been, you'd know they're crazy too. Because none of us gets to be the people that don't have mess, serious mess in our story. We just don't. We don't get to be the family that doesn't have mess. We don't get to be the parents that get it all right. We don't get to be the employee or the employer that never makes a mistake. Today, fifth. So today's truth, this is what I want you to walk away with. If you forget everything else, don't forget this, and we're going to have to explain it briefly, and then we're done. Our story happens in community. Fifth thing I want us to walk away with about our story, the context of our story is community. That means more than you think. Hold on. Look, we learn, we grow, we change in the context of community. Without community, you're dead. You can't eat. You come into this world radically dependent on someone else. The context of our story, the context of our growth, the context of our change, the context of everything that happens to us and who we are is community. So, the paralyzed guy's story in Mark chapter 2. <laughs> and like the blind guy that we talked about from two weeks ago, this paralyzed man has very limited prospects in life. He lives in the ancient Near East. There are not disability laws. There are not automated wheelchairs. There are not sidewalks that accommodate disability or bathrooms that accommodate disability. This man has a very limited life prospect. We don't know the origin of his paralysis. It was probably some kind of adult-onset paralysis, because if he had been born paralyzed, and that's a pretty rare thing, but if he had been born paralyzed, he would not have survived in the ancient Near East. He's probably had some sickness that left him paralyzed from the waist down, or he's had some kind of accident, maybe more likely an accident, that has paralyzed him either from the waist down or perhaps from the neck down. We don't know. But honestly, this man doesn't have much. He doesn't have much to offer. He can't be productive. He doesn't have much to give. But what he's got is four friends. So how does this paralyzed man get healed? And this is the heart of our message today. How does he get healed? Somebody brought him. He wasn't brought by four Roman soldiers. He wasn't brought by four wise men from the east. He wasn't brought by four strangers who saw him flopping by the gate and picked him up. He was brought by four friends who knew him and knew his need, may have even known him before he was paralyzed. 
may have even remembered and, and longed for the kind of productivity and lifelong friendship that they would have, and now they've seen that robbed. He was brought to Jesus by four friends, but not only so. When he's brought to Jesus, and we've got to read this again, listen to this, verse 5 from Mark chapter 2. I'll start with verse 4. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and these roofs would have been made of thatch kind of material that they could have dug through. They have this paralyzed man on a mat. They lower him down to Jesus. After digging through it, lowering the mat, the paralyzed man was lying on. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Did you hear it? When Jesus saw their faith, he said, son, when Jesus saw their faith, I don't know if you've ever had a time in your life when you couldn't believe for yourself. And if you've had that kind of time, then you know that the only thing that gets you through is community. Someone believing for you. Four friends brought this paralyzed... Four friends brought community, brought this paralyzed guy to Jesus, and they believed, the four friends believed... They'd heard enough, they'd seen enough. Four friends believed that Jesus could do something, and because of that, this guy was healed. So what? Well, first of all, you and I have got to recognize this truth. Don't go to sleep on me yet. The Apostle Paul, writing later, would put it like this. Seriously, listen to this. Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said, you're the body of Christ, and to add emphasis, and each of you is part of it. Well, now that means many things, but let me tell you one thing it means. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter how disconnected you feel. It doesn't matter how much you think other people ought to be reaching out to you and they're not. It doesn't matter how alone, well, it does matter how alone you feel, but in in the epic sense of things, it doesn't matter. You are the body of Christ. You and I, we're part of the body of Christ. That's the reality. That's the spiritual reality. Those of you who grew up in a church like I did, I grew up in the Bible Belt in a Baptist church. And those of you who grew up in even Protestant churches anywhere, if you grew up with a Catholic background, it would be a little different for you. But if you grew up in a Protestant church in America in the 20th century, and especially if you grew up one of the Protestant communities that was more influenced by revivalism, and by revivalism I mean you know Billy Graham and that, that kind of thing. If you grew up in that kind of a church, then you have all of your life, you've heard the phrase, personal relationship with Christ. You need to have a personal relationship with Christ, which is oh, it's a great phrase. You do. That's an awesome phrase. It describes this incredible potential for you and I to connect personally with God, really having a relationship with him, absolutely. But you know that phrase is never used in the Bible? The Bible never talks about a personal relationship with God. Now, as I said, it's a wonderful phrase, but there's danger, you and I using that phrase, especially for an American audience, because we're so addicted to individualism anyway. The danger is that we end up thinking about ourselves like these individual dots rotating around Jesus, but we're not. When you and I get connected to him, we get connected. We get connected to one another, and that's the context of our lives. So we're more like an atom. We're protons and neutrons and electrons orbiting around and within an atom. And you know what happens when you split an atom? It's cataclysmic. That's why sometimes when you distance yourself from us, that's why sometimes when you casually move in and out of churches, that's why it's so damaging. Because we're the color purple. Here we go. We come come full circle. We're the color purple. And you know how you get purple? I looked it up because I'm clueless about color. You get purple by mixing various elements of red and blue. And some uh, suggested, Wikipedia said, if you want the most royal purple, you add in little elements of green. 
And God intended for this group, Gateway Community Church, and intending it by the way he said of this group, Gateway Community Church, I'm going to give you the best piece of property in Northern Virginia. So I want you, Gateway Community Church, I want you to live into that. Because I'm going to bequeath you with something awesome and epic. And I want you to live up to that. I want you to be this particular royal shade of purple. And when a couple of red dots decide they're going to leave, they change our color. When a couple of blue dots get connected, the the shade of our purple changes because we are purple. That's the context of our story. So after we recognize it, we've got to act on it. We've got to act on it. That means if you're new to the area, welcome. There's some awesome things about Northern Virginia. Some crummy things as well. But no area gets to be the place that doesn't have mess. Not because there's anything wrong with the area. There's nothing wrong with dirt. There's something wrong with the people who occupy that dirt. (laughs) You have to drive next to them. And you guys are horrible drivers, can I just say. None of you have any idea what to do at a four-way stop. Can we all just agree? At a four-way stop, just whoever gets there first goes, okay? This drives me crazy. And when you get on 66 and 95 and 495, you lose your minds. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but you lose your minds. Anyway, there's some great things about living in Northern Virginia, but if you're new to this area, get connected to a purple. Jump in. Because you're meant to be there. That purple is designed to include your redness or blueness. Or maybe you're a green. And buddy, if you're a green and you're missing, shame on you! I made that up. I don't know what that means. Also, if this is all true, if you're circling around Gateway, would you just jump in? So here's the swimming pool. It's a great image. Because this is a meal of jumping in. We're going to do this in a minute. This is the swimming pool. And... We try to do everything we can, and I promise you we're not good enough, but we try to do everything we can to let you know the water's warm, it's okay, and we're splashing around, we're having fun. Once in a while, Nate splashes too hard, I get water in my nose, he and I yell at one another. It's okay, though, because you're a mess, too. So come on, jump in. And we try to provide access points for you to jump into. We don't have enough access points. That's because we're missing you. You need to help us think about what some more of those access points are. But jump in. Get in. It's who you are. It's the reality. It's the context of our story. Look, we think about the context of our story. When we think about our story, if you are in your 30s or 20s, I'll guarantee you, that you think about the context of your story as your work or your career. It's where you spend the majority of your time. It's how you get your meaning. If you happen to be a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, kids. That's the context of your story. The kids. Well, that's better than work. But the kids are only a part of your community. We're also part of your community. Help raise us. (laughs) Community is the context of our story, not our work. Because it's all about relationships. So the other thing is, don't just jump in. Don't just become part of circle. But if you know someone who's hurting today, if you know someone who's hurting today, go grab a mat, find out where Jesus is, dig a hole, and lower them down. Go do the work of community. All right, let's end with a couple of assignments, and then we've got an assignment after the assignments. Assignments. First, a couple of weeks ago we talked about having five spiritually curious conversations. I failed miserably. I had one. All week long, I only see Rhonda and Terry and Alex. I'm not curious about them at all. No, I'm just kidding. But I need to find a way to get out more. But still working on it. I know some of you were able to have five, but those of you who haven't, get busy. Let's have five 
significant, spiritually curious conversations. And let's work on that this week. Keep going. Second assignment. I want you to think of and then act on. Think of and then act on one significant step you can take toward community this week. Maybe it's lunch after church today or next week. I don't have time. You don't not have time. You're too busy not to be invested in community. You need it, and it's who you are. Maybe it's dinner with friends next week. I know your schedule. You'll have to plan it for a month from now. So go ahead, call this week and plan it for a month from now. Dinner with friends. Maybe it's this week you'll pray for everyone in your small group every day this week. You'll send them a note tomorrow, and you're going to say, you know, I heard this awesome sermon yesterday, and I'm going to pray for all of you every day this week. So just know that I'm praying for you, etc. Think of and then act on one significant step you can take toward community. And all God's people said? They were a little more excited when they said it, but that's what they said. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, it's one of the reasons that we're in the cafeteria today. We knew that many people were away and this would be a small group. We also knew that we were talking about community. So trust me, if you're visiting, we don't do this every week. I'd love to, but we almost never do it. But we're going to do it again this morning, even though we did it last week. I want you to turn your chairs into circles of at least four and not more than six. I want you to groupletize, and then I'm going to give you some questions to talk about. And you're going to be groupletizing with people that you live somewhat near. So turn your chairs into groups of four, not more than six, and form little circles. Go. Real quickly, make sure you know who's in your circle, and find out quickly where they live. So who you are and where you live very quickly. Okay. All right. When I was little, Reggie, I spent most of my time when I was little playing baseball. I hated baseball. Sorry, Kyle. But (laughs) it was what you could do when you lived in a little town in South Carolina. And football. And football because it's easy and I loved football. And we didn't have video games. In fact, in a small town in South Carolina, we didn't have anything but a bicycle and a baseball glove and a football. What did you do for fun when you were little? Growing up, what did you do for fun? You've got two minutes. So go around the circle and tell what you did for fun when you were little. One minute. Okay, wrap it up. We're sitting this morning according to geography. So let's use that. Let's talk about not our spiritual community, which is the context of our story, but let's talk about our geographical community for a minute, our physical community. So what do you like best about your current neighborhood or community? And you define that however you want to. It can be your cul-de-sac or it can be Herndon. But what do you like best about your current, well, not Herndon if you don't live in Herndon, but what do you like best about your current community, your current, your physical neighborhood. Go. Less time, minute and a half. Be quick. 30 seconds. Okay, last comment. Quick, wrap it up. All right. Let me have your attention. What do you like least in your current community? Maybe uh, Lyle and Solon hate the commute, or maybe just generally there's too much traffic, or there are not enough kids, or there are too many kids. What do you like least about your current community? Quickly, go. Thirty seconds. Okay, wrap it up. Last comment, wrap it up. All right. Now this should be really quick. We're going to give you just 10 seconds to think about it, and then you'll just give your answers. What's your favorite place to eat in your community? 
All right, go. What's your favorite place to eat? Okay, wrap it up. Let me have your attention. Okay, I am so sorry for this. We should have come prepared for this, but we didn't. But most of you have a program. I want you to do me a really big favor. I'm really sorry for this, but will one person in each circle act as a recorder? And will you write down those places to, to eat? I'm going to post those next. I'm serious. I'm going to post those next week. So somebody in each circle, write down those places to eat. I need some new places to eat, first of all. And second of all, we're going to post them. So write them down. All right, let me give you the next question. That's too much noise for writing. All right, the last question. What event in your community, what event in your community makes you feel most connected? It might be the fire truck driving Santa Claus. It might be the movie theater. It might be a local club, a running club. or It might be Friday night football games. What event in your community makes you feel most connected to your geographical community? I know that's tougher for some of you. All right, start talking. Do this quickly, one more minute. Okay, let me have your attention. Okay, so who knows his name? His name may have been Joseph. It may have been Altheus. Stay in your circle, by the way. It may have been Matthew. It could have been any number of things. But he has some kind of sickness or he has some kind of cataclysmic accident. And he can no longer walk. And he has limited use of his arms. And he has no hope. He has no prospects. He cannot be productive. He has nothing. He doesn't have anything to offer. If he was married, he has nothing to offer his marriage. He has nothing except four friends. So here's the math of community. If Robbie is taking care of himself, then Robbie is being taken care of by one person. But if Robbie is in real community with Jesse and then my wife Diane, yes, and Rhonda, yes, who I see weekly, if whatever their names are, if Robbie is in community with them, then Robbie has three people taking care of him. Not one. The context of our story is community. All right. On the last night of his life, Jesus was betrayed by his community. Okay, there's risk in community. (laughs) Because none of us is the person who doesn't have mess. So there's risk in community. But it's what we were made for. So on the last night of his life, Jesus was betrayed. But before that, he had a meal with his best friends and with his community and with the person who betrayed him. And at that meal, it was a Passover meal, and he took bread and he broke it. This is the bread of the Passover meal. And he said, this is my body broken for you. I bet you that their responses were profound and spiritual and holy. I bet you almost all of them thought, what? What what did he say? But we know better. So this is the body of Christ broken for you. Now, somebody is going to come into your circle and they're going to hand it over to you and they're going to say, I won't do this yet, but they're going to say, Brian, the body of Christ broken for you. And then we get to be priests to one another. And Nathan gets to pass it to Alicia and say, hey, the body of Christ broken for you. Now, here's the danger in you and I doing this in a circle like this. It's intimate. I realize that. And so for that part of it, I honestly, I apologize. But this is an intimate activity. So I kind of don't apologize. The part I do apologize for is there may be someone here this morning who doesn't want to participate. Totally fine. Just let the people in your circle know, I don't think I'll be participating today. And you don't need to explain. If you need to be put on a mat, and let down in front of Jesus. You might want to tell your group that. And forget about communion. We won't disturb you. Y'all pray. So, make sure you know who's in your circle 
and then you'll be given a piece of bread and you be the priest to the person next to you and pass it around that circle. And this group is just going to try to manage the flow and make sure you're all good. So turn, make sure you know who's in your circle and then let uh, one another know if you want to participate today. If you're visiting and you can participate in your fellowship, you can participate here. So welcome. Christ broken for you, take it and eat. The blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins, take it and drink. Father, thank you so much for creating and sustaining the world, the universe, reality as we know it through the Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you squeezed into human skin. You made known to us uh, the Father, the future, what it means to have faith. Lord, I pray that you would help us to dive in. Give us the strength, uh, the persistence, uh, the courage, the faithfulness to not grow weary in doing good. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.